And then after that, we'll do the Parsha a little bit. Some interesting points on the Parsha. Fair deal? So the first thing, I, it's just to me, this is... I mean, you, you open up the news and all you see is Eretz Yisrael. I mean, there's other things also in the news. I was driving, by the way, on the Van Wick on Monday. We had to go to Lakewood. And I'm driving the Van Wick and I saw a caravan at 2 It was 12 o'clock and it was probably the first caravan of the pro-Gaza um, demonstrators. Oh my gosh, they were not happy. And they had this truck, and the truck had this big neon sign that said, Israel, the new Nazi Germany. And on the back, it had some pictures of some bombs going off. And as you're doing that, then you go online and you see Eretz Yisrael, and you're just saying to yourself, okay, so we're here. Okay, we're going to talk about we're here. But our hearts have to be there. So it says over here, I'm just going to go through. We'll do Yud we did last time. And now we're going to, we'll do it quickly again, if you want to follow. And then there's Yud Aleph and Yud Beis. But you don't have to follow, but you could. So the Rambam writes, Gedoli HaChachamim, the greatest of the sages. So people who are super intellectual, I mean, these are the greatest. Hayyam Menashkim Al-Tchumei Eretz Yisrael. They would kiss the border of Israel when they came to it. I remember, by the way, you see, guys, I don't think, I don't know. Maybe. Maybe. Did, how many, anybody here remember the old, the old Ben-Gurion airport? You get out on the ground? Yeah, do you remember that airport? Yeah. There, when you, you would get off the plane. You had you got off the plane. You got off the plane. You had to go down like 100 stairs. Right, from the plane. And yeah, then there was a bus, yeah. and you'd go on the bus for like 10 minutes. I don't know, 10 minutes, whatever. It would drive all around the whole airport and bring you into the old airport. Do, do you remember that? I remember. People would get down and kiss the ground. I kissed the ground. I used to kiss that ground as soon as I got off the plane. But I would kiss that ground as soon as you got off the plane. You know? Yeah, I know. It's much nicer. It's much, much nicer, but... But there was something, you know, you got off the plane and you were on the ground. And they would kiss the stones. And they would do tumble salts into the, in the dirt itself. Why? Because it's our land. It's the holy land. That's where we are. That's where we are. I, so let's say you take a guy like Kenny. Kenny's, I love Kenny. Kenny's a good guy. He's going to Ireland this year. Oh, no, I'm sorry, he went last year, or he's going this year. But he doesn't, he's going there because that's where his family was from. But he doesn't have, I mean, he told me, it's not like I'm making these assumptions that he doesn't have. He, don't, he doesn't have any, any feeling toward Ireland. He doesn't feel like he belongs there. No, we feel like we belong, it's there. You know, I remember my grandfather, when there was some news on the TV show, you know, on the TV in those days. There's a different type of TV. I can't help it. I have to reminisce for a second. We're not going to talk about Mr. Ed. Anybody remember Mr. Ed? I remember watching him, but I Remember the talking horse, Mr. Ed? He was before my time. Okay. Do you remember Lassie? Lassie, you remember? Rin Tin Tin, Lassie. You know what they used to have? Do you know that at, at, at night, I think it was like about 12 o'clock at night, the TV stand channels would go off? They turned off the TV. It was off. And at like 5 in the morning, they had an American flag flying. And, and not flying, you know, like in the wind. And they'd have, you know, the Star Spangled Banner. Do you guys remember anything like this? I promise you. Anyway... I watched all of that stuff, but America is still, and I love America, but Israel is Israel. V'chein Omer, and it says in the verse, Ki avadecha es avaneha, your servants love the stones, v'es afra yichonen, and the earth and everything. Now listen to this. 
The next is very hard because we don't live in Israel. But you have to remember that the Rambam also didn't live in Israel. Amru Chachamim, the rabbi said, whoever lives in Israel, your sins are forgiven. Now, that doesn't mean that when you go to Israel, that's the time to start eating pig on Rosh Hashanah Kippur. It just means that there's a level that you get more spiritual over there. It just it's just something something Eretz Yisrael just it's unbelievable. Shenemar as and he brings a pasuk. Then he says, "I feel halach ba arba amos." Even if you only walked four cubics, it means eight feet. You get off the plane, you walk eight feet. You have the world to come. Automatic world to come if you walk eight feet in the land of Israel. I don't know. But it's affected you. I, I'm going to go and say that there's some type of effect that you get that automatically you feel connected to the Jewish people, and that's a mitzvah. Remember, if, if, you're, if you connect to the Jewish people, then automatically you have Olam Haba because you're part of the nation. When it says, Kol Yisrael Yeshlam Haba, the famous Mishnah in Sanhedrin that we read in the beginning of Perk that every Jew has a share in the world to come, so, you know, the commentaries say that that applies if you perceive yourself as being Jewish, you know, call Yisrael and be Jew, I guess. You know, okay, so what do you do if you don't know you're Jewish or you never had a Jewish upbringing? So let's call it Tinuk Shanishba, a Jew that was captured by non-Jews and was raised in the non-Jewish world. That's a different, that's a different story. But as a general rule, as a general rule, when you get off the plane, you feel something. You even if it's just the falafel, you get off the plane. That's why we go by LL. My parents in 1968 decided to go to Israel. By the way, my father, Oliver Shalom, was he was a. I don't mean this negative. He's my father, so I wouldn't mean a negative. But he was a tough guy. He was. Um, we all got taller in America, you know. The previous generation was shorter. Right? Yeah? They were all punched over. They were they, malnourished. Malnourished. They weren't this tall. My father was six foot. That was that was tall. That was tall for somebody. It's it's tall, but it's not but it was unusually tall. And he was very involved with not the Jewish Defense League, but something of that similar character. So he brought us to the Gaza Strip. I was a, I was um, I was ten years old, and we went to the Gaza Strip. It, I don't remember really what it looked like, Hamas but a little bit. Right it was no Hamas was not there then. Actually, the Brotherhood of uh, the Islamic Brotherhood was still, was there, but not like we know it. Yeah, so we went there. So my father asked, "What?" I went there in '93. You in Gaza? Gaza? Yeah, and it was a, a tour. They took us to Gush Katiz and all that. Wow. So my father, they asked the Lubavitcher Rebbe what airline they should, they could, should go on. You can't understand. In 19, 1968, going to Israel was a big deal. You know, in those days when you, first of all, I mean, there was no, there was no border control. I mean, you, you did your passport, you know. Right, but there was no. They didn't check your shoes. <laughs> they didn't take off your belt. It was crazy in those days. You know, people didn't go on the same airplane. Like you know, husbands and wives would go on different planes because there could be a crash. Do you do you know that? Right, people did not fly the same planes, and the big deal was when you would go in line was getting flight insurance. Whereas it wasn't flight insurance; it was life insurance because. There was this tremendous fear of dying, so they asked my they asked Lubavitcher Rebbe what airline they should fly on to Israel, and the Rebbe said there's only one. He said like this: He said there's only one airline to go to Israel, El Al. That's when El Al wasn't wasn't closed on Shabbos or anything. He said the only way to go to Israel is El Al. Now, that doesn't mean that it's wrong to go by Delta, 
he was just making a point that there's something even from the, and when you go on El Al for the moment you leave the gate and you're in Israel already you get in the attitude you get in the feeling you know <laughs> you're in Israel already yeah and he says cover bar and whoever is buried we we did this a little bit last week with the burial stuff whoever gets buried in Israel is chaperlo. He have a certain amount of, but you're atoned in a certain way. He's like a little bit. It's like a little bit as though you're being buried by in an altar. It's a, it's a big deal to be buried in Eretz Yisrael. However, some people don't get buried in Eretz Yisrael. Lubavitcher Rebbe wasn't buried in Eretz Yisrael. Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky, Rav Palm, there are plenty of people who are not buried in Eretz Yisrael. It goes both ways. On one side, the, the advantage of Eretz Yisrael is the holiness of the land. But on the other side, the body is not, is not buried as swiftly, obviously. And the family can't see the, can't go to pray there so much. And the students can't go there. You know, you're you're in a different continent. Yeah. So listen what he says over here. Li oilam yidur adam be'eretz Yisrael. That's what he says. This is very, very biz- unusual words. He says, you should always live in Israel. Afilu be'er sherubagoy. Even in a city that is overwhelmingly not Jewish. So let's take, for example, Nazareth. Not known to be a very Jewish neighborhood, right? It, or Bethlehem. I'm not talking now about the danger of living, you know, in a Palestinian-controlled area. I'm just talking about the concept over here. Now you could talk about, in Israel, let's say, uh, Akko today. You know, Akko, do you know where Akko is? Akko is north Israel. It's a northern part of Israel, but it's on the Mediterranean Sea itself. Akko was at one point in Jewish history in the Middle Ages was like the Jerusalem. It was like it was the place to be. When anybody came by boat, they land. They either went to Haifa, Akko, or Tel Aviv, Jaffa. But a lot was in Akko. It was like a very. But today, Akko is. I don't. It's almost all Arab. The Rambam is saying it's better to live in a in a and obviously has to be safe, but in an in all Arab city, right? And don't live outside of Israel. Even in a city that's majority Jew, so it's better to live in Israel, according to the Rambam, in Akko, which is almost all Arab. Then, it, but but again, it's 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 safe. We're going, we're going to go with that, right? It's better to live there than it is to live in Borough Park, or in Muncie, or in Lakewood, or Queens. Okay, because he says whoever leaves Israel and goes out of Israel, it's a little bit like you're worshiping idols. Something about it. Now the truth is, I could show you how we all understand this very well. We, we understand this. If I go to anybody and I say to them, um, when, when was Christmas? Right? Any Orthodox Jew. The most religious Orthodox Jew. The guy whose pace is down to the floor and who the woman whose shaitel is up to the ceiling, right? Not shaitel, the wig, you know. She's got five wigs on, you know. Okay, you ask her when is Christmas. Is she gonna know when Christmas is? Hundred percent. December twenty fifth. She's gonna know. If they don't know in Israel, they don't know when Christmas is. They have no clue. They have no clue. Do you know what I have in my house? Have you? Who's been to my house? You've been. Do you know my uh, my chassid that dances? I think so. You know what I'm talking about? I have a chas, a dancing chasid in a doll in my house in the kitchen. Yeah. <laughs> I have it. I have it. We were in Mary Sharm and the guy is selling this chasid. It's a jingle bells. It's jingle bells. He's singing jingle. I, I, we couldn't believe it. 
Achas is doing jingle bells. And no clue. No clue. You know? No clue. You sure it wasn't a Santa? They just took switched it was. That's what they did. He probably got a good deal. He probably got a good deal. The guy liked the way it sounded. Put it in. Who knows? Some guy. <laughs> no clue. They have no, no clue. Which brings me to the Chil Hashem element. I am, I, it's very careful. I got to be really careful because I, there was a historian. And I don't even want to mention her name. She was a Jewish woman. Oh, let me just read the last line here. He says, Just like it's prohibited to go out from Israel to Chutzlarts, he says, Cain also it says Bavel, so also it's usher to leave Babylonia, the Sharatsos, to go to other countries. Babylonia was your Lakewood, was your uh, Muncie, Brooklyn, Queens, was your major Jewish hub. You Miami. Leave, so you can't leave Lakewood to go to middle of nowhere. Yeah, to Indiana. Yeah. That's what the Rambam is saying. Now, I don't know if he's saying usher in the sense of prohibition of milk and meat. You know what I mean? I don't think that's what he's saying. I think this is a Hashkafic point of view. Now, I will tell you, as a person who grew up in New Haven, Connecticut, it is terribly difficult to be a religious, to be a really spiritual religious Jew in, in little town America is very hard. Now, Ari Kaplan once told me, because I was very close to Ari Kaplan, you know Ari Kaplan, the author? So he is from he was from Louisville, Kentucky. That's where he grew up. He was a Valchuva from Louisville, Kentucky. His wife is also from Louisville, Kentucky. And when he first got married, instead of going to Kolel, he took a rabbi job in some nowhere America, you know, like I don't know, Knoxville, Tennessee or something. I don't know. East Palestine. East Palestine. What what state is that? Ohio. Ohio. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That was last two years ago. So he took a job in the middle of nowhere, and he told me it's the best thing because you can sit and learn all day. Get paid, sit and learn, and nobody bothers you. Okay, that's for Ari Kaplan because he was at his level. But the Rambam is talking about the average human being, you know? You're finding yourself. My best friend was a guy by the name of Paul Maturo, Italian kid. And I couldn't understand when I was really young, like, why was he always, he always had Vicks cough drops in his mouth. Now I know why he had Vicks cough drops, because he was smoking all day. But the thing, <laughs> but the thing was, you're in a different environment. You're not in, you know, you're away from the tribe. Anyway, uh, going back, I was going to speak about something, but Kiddush Hashem. So there was a historian, her name was... Okay, I'd rather not because it's probably less than hard what I'm going to say. She didn't blame the Holocaust on the Jews. She didn't do that. But she did feel that the the Chil Hashem, or the way that sometimes Jews might work in business, or whatever, was a major component. Now, that's not really fair. That's like, that's really like blaming the victim and, and saying to a girl who was raped, well, you should have been wearing a burqa, and then it wouldn't have happened. It's, it's not right. It's totally wrong. That being said, we have to be careful about Kiddush Hashem. We have to be really, really, really careful. And we have to be careful because it's the right thing. But when the world is clearly going in a path of 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 non pro Jewish attitudes, we gotta be really careful. So there was a uh, yesterday. I, I I I get all these WhatsApp groups, and there were uh, three Orthodox Jews that were thrown off a uh, a JetBlue airplane. Did you really see that? So I have the whole dialogue. Whoever was it was going going through the situation, taped it. You know, and as an outsider, totally, I, I'm totally not biased because I'm biased because I can t- I can say that when Jews are doing what's wrong, what had happened was they were on a plane, three people were on a plane, and 
the two men didn't want to sit next to some woman. They got permission from somebody else to switch the seats around. I'm sure you've been on planes when that happens and they start moving seats around. But everybody agreed. And the, the stewards or stewardesses did not like it. They didn't like the idea that these three people picked themselves up and switched the seats around. And you hear them saying that it's illegal to move the seat. You were given a seat, and that's where you have to sit. And the woman is saying, and this is what I meant by Chil Hashem, she says, but it's our religion. You can sit. We all know that you can sit next to a woman. And a man can sit, you know, a woman can sit next to a man. You don't do that. You've got to be really careful in the world at large today. You know what I mean? You've got to be really careful. So then the steward says to her that you could be causing the plane to crash because you hear it. Your mom is hear this from a, from a, on a jet blue guy because we the weights of the plane are made as such that if you move around, it can cause the plane to uh, to, to no. It's unbelievable. At that point, there's another woman who's clearly not Jewish from her accent and the way she's speaking. And she says, you know that's not true. You know that's not true. You know? All the overweight people have to be spread out easily. So at that point, the pilot gets on, and you hear the pilot saying, it was very interesting, the pilot said to these three people, you must leave the plane now. And, you know, it's on, it's on speaker. And the other, the, the people around, the passengers said they're not doing anything wrong. Well, you know, sir. And the pilot said, the stewards and stewardesses do not want them on the plane. And I have no choice but to listen to what the stewards and stewardesses say. They didn't want to get off. And the pilot said, then we will all dis- dis- we'll all leave, and we will leave you on the plane by yourself. That's what he says. No, no. So this is a very clearly a case of either anti-Semitism or their nerves were frayed for something else. They were in a bad place. Whatever it is. Were they right? No, they were not right. The, the the three Jewish people, they should have just sat there and just let it go. They should have let it go. They were wrong. Even though it's their right to move with somebody else, but we have to be very careful not to make people feel uncomfortable. The pilot's wrong. The steward and stewardess is crazy. That idea that the plane is going to shift, that's just ridiculous. But, but, we have to be very sensitive. Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky, uh, that's what I feel. We could disagree with me, that's fine. Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky felt, and I followed that approach from Rav Palm, that you don't stand up during davening when you're on a plane. You don't stand up. You say, Shemona Esri is sitting. Because it bothers the stewards and the stewardesses. It bothers them. It just bothers them. It bothers everybody. And therefore, he felt you don't do it. You know? By the way, I just want to tell you something very interesting. You know, we have our Delta pilot. He sits over there on Shabbos, Schneer. And I, I asked him, like, have there been any changes? Like, what they do is they figured out the average weight of the average American in the United States. And then what they do is they count up the number of people, and that's how they come up with the number, the weight, of the plane because they have to have enough fuel, right? What they they make a tally of the weight of all the of the luggage, the of all the weight of the people, the weight of the fuel, and that's how they know what they have to have on the plane, right? So he told me this is gonna be very disturbing for I think almost all of us here. It, the weight until two years ago. Of the average American, that means male and female together, was 200 pounds. And they upped it 
to 220. <laughs> now that still doesn't cover my weight, but but that's what they they upped it to 220. That's how they do it, you know. So this is just nonsense. You might you don't have to agree with me. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe maybe a person has the right because it is. It is wrong for there to be such discrimination. No, they don't agree. The people felt well, the people all felt that it was it, it, they wrong. Got fired it happened two days ago. These people are gonna get a nice settlement from the airline. They're, they're yeah, I'll pass it if you want to hear. I'm sorry, what did you say? so like the flight attendants are kind of given like a little bit too much liberty to decide like who is and who isn't behaving poorly enough to the is, point where they should be removed. Is that true? Yes. Um, oh, like, you were dating a student. Yeah, I dated a flight attendant for like four years and like she had had like numerous people removed from the plane where I was like, what? Like, that's not even that serious. Or like she had told me about other scenarios where someone else had gotten removed. But now everything's on video and, and it becomes a PR nightmare for the airline yeah. and you know. Unfortunately though, they basically they're just given the ultimate discretion. Like if they feel if they basically it's in their contract that if they feel a customer uh, uh, a passenger is making them uncomfortable or they're not listening and they're ignoring like direction, that they're at liberty to remove them from the plane. Because they, they consider that it could be a, a risk while they're in the air. They have their power. They can do what they want. Yeah. That's what evolved FAA, over here. See, this FAA is the one good thing about our law, that it's actually a regular occurrence that people move seats. Correct. Oh, El Al doesn't care. I mean, they do care. They probably but get they the very... Un- but they also know that their population up until this war business, up until this war where there's nobody flying, right now nobody's flying to Israel, so you have no choice to, but to use El Al. But before that, they knew that their primary population were the Orthodox Jews. That's who El Al was dealing with. So when you're dealing with, when you know that that is your population, so the stewardesses knew that they had to put in an extra half hour of having this guy sit next to this one and this one next to that one. You know what I mean? That They understood that's the way it was, you know? But, you know, Delta, this wasn't Delta, this was Jeff Blue. I, if you want to hear it, you can listen to it. It's seven minutes long and you hear the back and forth. And it's a little, it is really shocking, but I'm just saying we have to be careful. So this Rambam just talks about what is a Chil Hashem. So if you want to, if you want to learn what is a chel Hashem for two minutes and what is not a chel Hashem, we could do that. Okay, so Yudali, the Rambam says and there are also things. You see, the Rambam is talking about the idea that if uh, uh, if a person is forced to do a sin, at what point do you give up your life? That's what the context of Chil Hashem is really about. That if you're forced to, uh, to, to kill somebody, if the Nazis say, I, we will kill 1,000 Jews if you don't give us um, 10 men, whatever, are you allowed to do that? That's, that's the context, context of, of, the, of, the, of the Rambam. And he goes through all different scenarios. Then he starts talking about what we call Chel Hashem, which is doing things which, you know, which are in a, which are really dis, uh, disgracing the Torah and God. What is that? You have somebody who's like supposedly a big rabbi. He's known, or people look at him, or he's perceived in some way as a Torah Jew. And like everybody, this guy's got a rep, a good rep. And he does Devarm Shabrios, things that the average person that people look at it and look at it, what he's doing, and they're just like disturbed by it, disgraced by it. He's not acting right. He's just, he's not acting right. You ever meet rabbis or people who are religious that are doing things that are just not acting right? Either, either uh, the from people think that they're, he's acting wrong. Anybody. Well, a lot Anybody. 
He's just saying that people <coughs> look at these people. Nobody likes people to triple park their cars. All right? Nobody likes that. You know what I mean? The Matthew religious and not religious. So you have somebody who triple parks his car. It doesn't matter if he's religious or not religious. Nobody's happy with that. But there's no prohibition in the Torah that says thou shall not triple park your car. Right? You can't find that anywhere. But that's called the Chil Hashem based on what we're going to learn. Even though what he's doing is not technically a prohibition, so now he's going to give examples. Number one, he buys things, he takes things from the store, let's say, but he, he's, he's, a, he's buying things. And he doesn't pay for the. He doesn't pay right away. He puts it, like he says, "I'll pay you later." Of course, the next line is the condition. We're talking about a guy that has the money in his pocket. And the the storekeepers are saying, "Could you please pay now?" And he says, "Later, I'll pay you later." I once experienced this in Ezra Academy. That's a school over here. I never saw such a thing. I'll tell you the story. There was a boy who was in yeshiva. And he he was dropping out. And I finally got him back to yeshiva. So I was so happy. I went with the, the, the Rabbi Freilich, who's the principal of the school. Said, I'll take him back because he was out for a few weeks. I'll take him back. But I got to see the father. So I said, okay. Father said, okay. I remember it was a Monday morning. He picked me up in a BMW coupe. And I'm saying, this is a good day. I, mean, I got a kid into yeshiva. I'm going down there in style. Everybody's happy. This is going to be a happy day. I walk in the office, and the, they greet the boy, and they say, we're happy. We'll take you back. Just you have to take it serious now. They Whatever they did, the talk. Rabbi Freilich, the principal, the owner of the school, says uh, to the father, can I talk to you for a moment? And the father says, sure. So Rabbi Freilich says, this was in uh, February time. Rabbi Freilich says, you know, I, I really don't, don't really want to press the issue, but it's February, and we haven't gotten a penny from tuition from you. And you're, we're taking your son back, but is it possible that we could get something? Okay. But he said it in a very, very nice, non-threatening way. The guy takes out a wad of $100 bills, like a thick, thick wad of $100 from his pocket. Remember, this guy's driving a BMW coupe, you know, and he just takes out, I happen to have a few hundreds in my pocket. So he takes out a whole wad of hundreds, you know, and he shows Rabbi Freilich, and he says, I have the money in my pocket, but I'm not giving you a penny until the end of the year. At the end of the year, I will pay it up. Not giving you anything. Now, <laughs> now Rabbi Frel is sitting there, and I'm sitting, I can't believe what I'm seeing. <laughs> I'm watching the Titanic sink. You know? <laughs> I couldn't believe it. And I, I, and Rabbi Freyler, at first, you see this, he was being chilled, you know? trying to get the kid back into school. Then I see him getting really angry. And I said to the father, I mean, it's, and the father says, that's the way I am. I have it, but I'm not giving it until the year is over. Anyway, needless to say, Rabbi Freilich told him that this is not working. <laughs> and I had to bring him to a different yeshiva that day. But the bottom line. That was okay with no, I told the I told the principal of this other yeshiva, Rabbi Friedman. You know Rabbi Friedman. I told Rabbi Friedman the story, and I said, and Rabbi Friedman heard it. And when the guy this said, recent? "Huh, this recent? about four years ago," so I, I said to Rabbi, so Rabbi Friedman said to this uh, this guy, well, the guy said, "So what's tuition?" So Rabbi Friedman, so this Rabbi Friedman, he's a very chill, he's a chill guy. He looked at him and he said. I just want your son. I don't want a penny from you. The father said, but I have to pay you. He said, no, I don't want your money. The guy didn't know what to do with himself. He didn't know what. He didn't know what to do. 
He would, you know, anyway, at the end of the day, he paid full tuition. He was stuck because, you know, whatever. The guy, he was, he was played. But the point being, the Rambam is saying, if, like that, you got the money. No, you're not saying to the storekeeper, could I put it on the tab? Money's a little difficult. I'll pay it at the end of the month because of whatever. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about this type of person, you know, and there are people like that. There are, there are people that it's very difficult to get money from. That they buy things like. I'll, Does this mean that people have to know that the guy had the money and wasn't paid until later, or just the, by the fact that he waited? Is it a chum Hashem even if only the storekeeper and him know, or does it have to be other people know? What do you mean? If it's, if it's just the, the storekeeper shouldn't be going telling people that no, John, no, that John has no is money. Is it a chum Hashem just if the storekeeper or does it have to be public knowledge that the guy's that this guy poor doesn't pay on time? Well, it becomes it becomes public knowledge. <laughs> well, but where, where, when becomes, is it the chil Hashem? Is it the chil Hashem when it's public, or I don't say no. Explain to me. I'm not hearing the no, question. If, you, if the guy goes to the store, takes his stuff, and says, "I'll pay you next month," you right. have the money, right? Is the chil Hashem then, or is it only if people find out? No, that's then because for that guy, even for that one person, it's the chil Hashem. But between us, when a guy does that, everybody knows about it. I'm, but but yeah, it's it's. There are people who are very difficult. There are zip codes that everybody who has an organization knows that these diff- these zip codes are difficult to collect money, to collect, uh, collect debt that is owed. I have to tell you, Hashivenu, very little debt is owed historically. I could count literally on my fingers the number of people that stiffed us. There were a few, but we're talking about like in 32 years, I would say less than less than 20 people. That's nothing. You know? There's some people who are very difficult. There's some people every year I have to go to, and they're very wealthy people. Very wealthy people. And every year I have to say, Bob, Bob, come on, I'm really tight, you know? Again, very few. I, I, I'm, I'm being honest, two, three people. And I know who they are. I already know. I, I know how to deal with them. And we're not talking about people that don't have money. They never said that they don't have money. And, you know what I mean? It's just very hard for them. I'll never forget that there used to be a Persian, Arab Persian store on Main Street. It was called Ash and Cohen. Do you know? Do you remember them? They were a dry cleaner. You remember them. They were right over here. Where? Right. It was right on Main Street. Right uh, over By here, the lie? huh? Before that block worked out on that block, no, no, right over on this side. It was uh, where right after that, um, the, the urban press, they were the liquor store is. So there he was, he was Iranian Arab and he owed me money for something. He, he wasn't a bad guy, I mean, for this, he wasn't bad. <laughs> and I come in. And he said to me, I can't give it to you yet. I said, why not? It was like for $5. It was no big deal. He said, because there's a custom in, 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 in Iran that you, as a storekeeper, you never give out money before you first take in money. So I had to wait there like for 10 minutes until somebody came in to pay him a shirt. <laughs> That's what that, that was their custom. Uh, I, you never give in money out money before you get the money. Okay, okay. Positive cash flow, very important. <laughs> <laughs> so, find you're Persian. Yeah. So find out if there's such a thing yeah, by the Arabs. Yeah. Find out if there's such a thing by the Arabs. He, we, we had a good relationship until one day I found out that he supported. He, he was a Shiite and he wasn't so nice yeah. to Israel. But uh, until then, we had a. Should I tell you a crazy story? Are you in the mood for a crazy story? Nah, we'll do the round bump first. We'll finish the round bump. And if you want to hear a crazy story, then. We... Hello? Who's there? Bob? <laughs> okay, anyway. Uh, yeah, okay. Oh. The next thing, Oshiyerbe Bischalko Bachilo Shtia, 
or he eats a lot and drinks a lot. Eitzel Ame Haaretz. By who is that? By the food stand. Or when he talks to people, he doesn't talk nicely to people. So he's this big rabbi. He's this big Talmud Chacham. But when he talks to people, he puts them down. He doesn't speak to them nicely. And he or he doesn't smile to people. He always looks like 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 like, like angry. He's always in fights. He's always fighting with people. That's called a chilasham. Is there any prohibition with walking around being with what's this called? Scouring? Is that what it's called? Scour? Is that a word? Is there a prohibition about that? No, I'll tell you a very famous, famous story. And then maybe we should stop because I'm afraid it's getting late for everybody. Famous story. There was a, uh, you ever see the Magid books? You've seen the books, the Magid? Rabbi Crone's book. There's a whole series of books. They're very good books, the Magid books. It was all based on uh, a Magid was a person who would go through one city to another city and he would inspire people. He was like a, 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 insp- a, a inspirational lecturer. That's what a, that, that's what a Magid basically was. And um, it was based on one, one famous one whose name was Rabbi Shadron and who died a couple years ago. He was in Jerusalem. Okay. So... So, Rabbi Shradron, I was lucky I had heard him speak personally. He was a funny guy. Yeah, he was a Hasidic Jew who lived in the old city in in Meir Sha'arim. So his humor was not the same as Sebastian Maniscalco. Okay, (laughs) Okay, I like that guy, Sebastian. His his humor was not the same as, you know, as, uh, I don't know, you know, you got the picture. It was it was very Hasidic humor. But it was still, he was a funny guy. So when he would get up in front of the shul and he would talk about the Yetzirah making you sleep all, you know, go to bed very, very late and not being able to get up in the morning. So he would put, he would start making noises like, I'm the Yetzirah, don't go to sleep, you know, whatever. So in, in Meir Sha'arim, that was like a like a unheard of. I mean, they didn't do that type of thing. So he was like in that world. He had he was over the line, you know, or he was edgy, you know. He was edgy in that world, you know. There's videos of him with um, I think it was with uh, uh, Rav Kanievsky or somebody else. And Rav Kanyes was literally laughing from, from this, this, this guy. Because he's edgy. Again, in that world, he's very edgy. Okay. One time, somebody came to him and had a complaint. And said that he had gone over the line. He, had just, he was just too much. Too, you know, he was just too much. And it's not right. You know, you shouldn't be... A clown. You have to, you know, Torah is Torah. And he felt that Rav Shadron was wrong for going to such an extreme, you know. So, so he, he felt that. Because his whole purpose was to bring Jews closer to God. He wasn't trying to be, uh, you know, uh, Seinfeld. That's, that's not what he was trying to do, you know. So he went to the Chazanish. Now the Chazanish was the leading rabbi Posek of the generation. He died in the 1950s, I think, or early 60s. And if there was anybody who was not a clown, it was the Chazanich. I mean, he was he was real serious. He, the man was real serious. The Chazanich asked him to, to say over his entire routine. He says over the whole routine. And then the Chazanich says that he, the Chazanich, Grew up in pre World War Two, World War One, Vilna, which is Lithuania. 
He said he grew up in pre-World War I Lithuania. And he said the Orthodox Jews, he said, all the firm Jews, were walking around and they all looked angry and they all had scour, scowls, is that the word, whatever, and they, they were not happy looking. And he said, and all the non-religious Jews in Vilna at that time period, what he remembered, were all smiling and happy and joking around in the street. And he said, that reality, that the Orthodox Jews were all looking you know, serious, and you know, he said that destroyed an entire generation. Because who wants to be around people who are negative and bad, you know, upset looking? And you want to be around happy people. And the Chazanish said, you keep on making Jewish people laugh and you keep on making them happy. That's, so it's very important, even though, so the, when the Rambam says that it's a chil Hashem to walk around with this very scary, I met big mechubal, and this week I met a big mechubal from Eretz Yisrael, Rabbi Goliath, his name. He was in his 80s. He was so happy, smiley. It was, I'm, again, he wasn't a clown, but just, you know, good, happy man. Okay, I'm sorry we didn't do a commission inside. But, oh, so if you want to hear a crazy story about uh, Arabs and, and, and Yehuda Zakatinsky, I can tell you one, but you can go home because it's late. No, please. You want to hear crazy? Of course. Okay. There was a snowstorm. <clears throat> I don't know if you remember this. It was about 15 years ago. It was a massive snowstorm. And there were these two people who were fighting. I don't know, I think it was on 70th Avenue. They started fighting. They were fighting over a um, parking space because there was so much snow. And one person bit the other person's finger off. That person ended up getting divorced. His wife ended up having an affair with, <laughs> with a Muslim, no, no, a Muslim Shiite who happened to be younger than him. That's an important part of the story. Okay? Now, when you have situations where people bite fingers off and then you have somebody who went to Beis Yaakov, she was a regular religious woman who has an affair, has an affair with, um, <laughs> with, a, with a, a Shiite Muslim, you know, what came first? Did he make her crazy? Or did she make him crazy? Who knows? You know what I mean? They're both crazy in their own right. I get a phone call from the brother of this woman. You see, I, I knew about the famous biting of the finger. That was in the neighborhood that was like, <laughs> did, you, did you hear about that? You know? Yeah. So... Uh, so that was like every it was a it was a discussion, you know, but it was near you. It was near you, anyway. But but no, I didn't know about the the this never woman, huh? I never heard this. <laughs> so this woman, I didn't I didn't I didn't know anything. The brother calls me up. The brother lives in Brooklyn. He's a he's in he's a rebbe and a he's like a regular upstanding person. And he's beside himself. He doesn't know what to do. Because this woman, it's not only that she had an affair, they decided that they, they are going to get married. In the meantime, she has a couple children in Beis Yaakov. And she has some sons in, I think it was, or Yisrael or whatever, or regular yeshivas, you know, regular yeshivas. The whole family doesn't know what they, yeah, okay, so she's divorced, but, but, they don't, you know, understand. They don't know what to do and what to do. And Rabbi Bergman, from down the down over there, Rabbi Bergman, was very good friends with this man, the brother of the, the wife, the woman who had the affair. Um, and he said, you know, you have no choice. Speak to Zakatinsky. Maybe he'll come up with an idea. <laughs> who knows? This actually, I'll tell you when this was. This was right after nine eleven. It was like a year after 9 11. 
Was it was 20. It was 20. I realize that. that. That's why I'm, I'm correcting that. Okay. So who do I know in the Islamic world? Now, I know that, you, that in, in the Islamic world, when it comes to the religious ones, I'm not talking about killing Jews or all that stuff. That's, I'm, not, I'm, not talking, I'm talking just the religious world of Islam. There, there are a number of things. Number one is marrying a woman who had an affair is bad. It's, it's like really bad. You know, really bad. Number two, it's embarrassing for the family. If the family finds out that, that somebody is marrying somebody who had an affair, it's like a bush, it's an embarrassment for the family. And number three, marrying a younger, an older woman, not, not, not looked upon in a good way. So I figured I'm going to go to the Arab, my buddy over here, Mr. Cohen, and I'm going to tell him what's going on. So I go to him, and I tell him. Now he thought, he didn't know anything about it. He knew, everybody in the community knew, in their community knew that this guy, make-believe his name was Mohammed, just, you know, whatever, that Mohammed was going to marry a Jewish woman, but they didn't know, which is okay, According to Islam, that's fine. But they didn't know that she had had an affair with somebody else. You understand that she had an affair with somebody else. She know that. And they didn't know that he was that he was younger than her. Okay. So I, I tell him the story. And he says to me, I'll never forget, he like he started freaking out and he said, This is not gonna happen. This is not going to happen. So he asked me if I would be able to go to his sheik into the, uh, by the mosque. So Adina, my wife, said, this is right after 9-11, she said, you're not going to any sheik, and any, you're not doing that. So we had a... will meet you at the police Yeah, so we had the equivalent of a Besden in the back of the dry cleaners. <laughs> and I had the sheik came, and uh, some representatives from his family came, and I testified that uh, this is what happened. And they all together, they all said it's not happening. Did the, the guy deny that it was true? No, at, the, at this point, I'm not, just telling you what happened. They told me when I told them what happened, I told the sheikh what happened, and I, I don't know what's called a sheikh, it could be called a imam yeah. Im or whatever, but they're rabbi, you know. When he said, when I told him what was going on, this is not happening, this is not happening. Well, the woman didn't know what to make of it, but he just disappeared from the neighborhood, he decided to move away like oh, overnight. He just decided that he's leaving. The neighborhood and they gave me a donation for the yeshiva because they were so happy with me so so the father the, the brother of this woman tells Rabbi Bergman that they they had gone to Rav Palm my Rebbe to, to figure out what to do, and they didn't know what to do, and that was before they came to me. So they went back to Rav Palm to tell Rav Palm that what I did, that I went to the sheik, or what, again, Uman, whatever, and that it's, it's finished, it's over. And Rav Palm said, I knew that Yehuda could take care of things, but I didn't know that he had that he knew sh people in the Arab community <laughs> that I didn't know. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty wild. It's pretty wild. Right? So we're good, because as long as we're not big rabbis, we'll Okay, no, but that, it means somebody who's, who's, who's identifiable. And by the way, to the outside world, you were...